the way you start out doing something, like speaking, praying in front of people, this kind of thing, you start out by just doing it. The fact that you admitted that you were afraid actually is braver <laughs> than doing the thing itself. To be able to stand up and say, yeah, I was afraid to do it, but I did it. I mean, you could, you could cover up and you could hope that people didn't notice and do it and say, well, I got away with that. But to appear in front of a bunch of people and say, I did it. I was afraid and I did it. That's even braver. So thank you for what you did, Emily. Um, had a pastor one time, he said he had never pastored a church before. He founded one and he said, well, we started out, I had an immature ministry. He said, how do you have a mature ministry? You start with an immature one. And that's, I would encourage anybody who's ever afraid to speak in front of a group or pray or this kind of thing. It's, to some of us who have, have done this sort of thing before, it's, it gets to, a little, to be a little bit of second nature. And we kind of forget how we were to begin with. And I want to apologize for that. I actually asked for someone to say a prayer at our small groups one time, and it was just out of the blue. And I asked him, and he, he looked kind of shocked. And then I thought afterwards, well, he probably not been asked to do that before. So please bear with me. I might, I might ask you to do something like that. And I'd, I made a little bit of a joke before we started tonight. I thought, I asked who was going to do the welcome. And I thought, well, maybe we ought to do it by, you know, somebody like myself just getting up here and say, um, Bobby, Bobby Pearson, do the welcome tonight. Would that go over very well? Well, maybe not. But I thought that would, that would kind of open it up to people and encourage people to come up. I asked Meta to speak tonight. I told her I really didn't want to do this, and she said she had the coronavirus and couldn't do it. So whether that's so or not, I won't question. <clears throat> okay, Kenny's not here tonight. and If he's watching, hey, son, he's got the flu, and this affords me an opportunity to tell a couple of stories on him. You remember he told how Cass had her new Hummer and they were parked somewhere and she needed to go through this ditch to get out and she gunned it and jumped the ditch and how he was terrified. Well, I don't know where she gets that, but um, when Joyce and I bought the car that we have now and you've a number of you folks were still at Hillcrest. We were there one night for some event, and we told Kenny we had a new car. And his mom said, well, would you like to drive our new car? Sure. So <laughs> that was a mistake, and I knew it was a mistake. I sat in the back. She sat in the front. He found the nearest hill and gunned it down that hill. So for Cass to do what she did, I, I completely understand. And it was also true that Kenny and I used to um, play a little golf on the weekends. And I'm not sure why, except that, you know, young kids like to drive a golf cart. Kenny was like 11 or 12. So I let him drive the golf cart. We're going to play golf. Had a cooler in the cart under my feet. I'm, I'm riding. Had water in it, cold water. And he makes a sharp turn, and I said, whoops, there went the cart. And he looked and ran the cart up on one of these big trash containers, big expanded metal things. So we're sitting in the cart like this. 
And he looks at me like, oh, that's not good, is it? So, son, I've told it now. So it probably doesn't surprise a number of you folks. Um, tonight I want to talk about people who were taken out of their comfort zone. Has anybody ever read the book, The Case for Christ? Have you ever read it? No one? No one? It's by a gentleman you Dawn has given me, she read a little, I guess. Uh, or it's a little book. Yeah, it's a little book. That's what you're saying, yeah. Uh, there was a gentleman named Lee Strobel who wrote the book. And he was a devout atheist. He was a writer of some sort. Um, I'm not sure whether he, well, I won't characterize his writings. But he decided that he was going to investigate Christ, his life, everything he could find about him and prove that Christ did not exist or if he existed he did not do the things he said that he did, it was said about him and so forth. And so in the end he became convinced and is a devout Christian now. So I'm going to refer to some of what he did in his book. And in this book and there is a name for it, and I cannot think of the name, and I don't have the book. I got rid of the book years ago, gave it to somebody. But there is one particular thing in his book, one particular thing in the life of Christ and the events around Christ that was like the, the nuclear blast, the thing which proved absolutely that Christ existed. He was who he said he was without a doubt, one thing. So I'm going to talk about Jesus' disciples. Okay, real quickly, I want you to know who these people were. Simon Peter was the son of Jonas. He was a fisherman who lived in Bethsaida and Capernaum. They were on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. James the Elder was the brother of John the Apostle, a fisherman who lived in Bethsaida, Capernaum, and Jerusalem. He also was a fisherman. John, brother of James the Apostle, he was known as the beloved disciple, a fisherman who lived in Bethsaida, Capernaum, and Jerusalem. Three fishermen. Andrew was the brother of Peter. He lived in Bethsaida and Capernaum and was a fisherman before Jesus called him. Fisherman, fisherman. Bartholomew or Nathaniel lived in Cana of Galilee. The New Testament gives us very little information about him. But Jesus called him an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. In other words, he was as he appeared to be. There's no fake about him. James the Younger lived in Galilee. Some scholars believe he was the brother of Matthew the tax collector. So he hung around with a fellow who wasn't too nice. James was a man of strong character and one of the most fiery type. Now this is important too. He was a fiery type. Judas was a Judean and the rest of the disciples were Galilean. So this is equivalent to Jesus coming to Alabama and selecting his disciples, but then when he comes to the last one, he picks somebody from Ohio. I mean, to them, that's what Judas would have been. He would have been somebody foreign to them. 
He was the treasurer of the band and among the outspoken leaders. There is no certain, this is according to this author, there is no certain reason as to why Judas betrayed his master. But it's not his betrayal that put Jesus on the cross. It was our sins. Judas had a part in Jesus' crucifixion. But Jesus said all along that he was going to Jerusalem to die. He foreordained that he would die. He was going to die for our sins. Judas' part in it, well, you know, it said that he was a thief. There are other opinions, okay? That, I mean, he, well, okay, I won't say any more about that. Um, it's also said that Judas was a violent Jewish nationalist who had followed Jesus in hope that through him his nationalistic flame and dreams might be realized. He's the second one who is kind of radical. Now, I've talked about this in our small groups. If you look at prophecies about the Messiah, there are three descriptions of a Messiah. There's a description of someone who's going to come. He will be a, a virgin birth, and he will be declared in the heavens, etc., etc. Then there will be a Messiah that it's said would be gentle and kind and would not say a word in his defense when that came. He would be like a reed blown by the wind. He would also be beaten. That's another description of Messiah. And then there's a Messiah of one who's going to come and the nations will bow down before him. The government will be on his shoulder. All of these kinds of things. I mean, it's like three different descriptions of a Messiah. Well, in truth, Jesus was and will be all of those. But there were some people who firmly believed that the Messiah, when he came, they had kind of built up this notion within the nation that when the Messiah came, he was going to drive the Romans out. He's going to set up a government, earthly government. That was his purpose. They kind of forgot all the other stuff about him being persecuted, beaten, all that kind of thing. So Judas was one of these people. Um, James the Younger, Judas, and Thaddeus was the brother of James the Younger. By character, he was an intense and violent nationalist with a dream of world power and domination by the chosen people. Some of these guys within Jesus' group that, that are kind of rough characters. He asked Jesus at the Last Supper, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Thaddeus was interested in making Jesus known to the world, not as a suffering Savior, but as a ruling king. Matthew, or Levi, lived in Capernaum. He was a tax collector. He was a publican. He was despised by the Romans and the Jews. Philip came from Bethsaida, the town from which Peter and Andrew came. The likelihood is that he too was a fisherman. Simon the Zealot, one of the little-known followers called the Canaanites, lived in Galilee. From his background, we see that Simon was a fanatical nationalist, a man devoted to the law, a man with bitter hatred for anyone who dared to compromise with Rome. These were a lot of violent guys here. And then when Judas um, killed himself, Matthias was selected to replace Judas. Matthias is said to have been with Jesus since his baptism until his resurrection. Now you never know about Matthias. He's what I call footnote people in the Bible. You see the mention of them, but you don't 
know a great deal about them. So what kind of guys were they? All right. Connie, if you'll give me our first scripture. It's from Matthew. Make sure I'm right. Yeah. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And he referred to himself as the Son of Man. Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say that to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Then he sternly warned the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Peter is favored. Jesus thinks he's great. <clears throat> From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed. But on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. So this guy, Peter, this is what he has to say. But Peter took him aside, Jesus, come here, and began to reprimand him, reprimand Jesus for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You're seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Peter is not Jesus. Peter is not God. Peter is no, nowhere near being godly. Peter is still learning. So he's a, he can be violent. He can be radical. He can speak up. He can lop somebody's ear off with a sword. He can do all kinds of things. So Jesus has to reprimand him. He has to bring him along. All of these guys have to be brought to the point that Jesus wants them to be, regardless of their background. Now, how does that apply to us? Everybody in here all good and like you need to be and Christ followers and following him in every possible way and all set, all good, pleasing to God? We've all got that work that needs to be done on us. And the same thing is true of these disciples. I believe that if it had been God's will to, you know, just, just have 12 people come up, and Jesus said, the first 12 people to come up, you're going to be my disciples. I believe he would have done the same thing, could have done absolutely the same thing. I don't have a clue as to why he chose these guys, mostly fishermen. Fishermen are not scholars. They're not, they're not very... They're not public speakers, for instance. Uh, so let take heart if you think you're not a public speaker. Look at these guys. Peter ended up being a very, very well-known preacher. 
So Jesus reprimands Peter. So what happens to Peter? Well, oh, here's another couple of things too. When Jesus is crucified, what does Peter say? Let's go fishing. Uh, I, just, I don't know what to do now. My leader's gone. Let's go fishing. And it's also true that Jesus told him he would deny him three times before the rooster crowed. So what did he do? He denied him. He was weak. Still had weaknesses. So this is what happened to Peter and Paul. They were both martyred in Rome about 66 AD during the persecution under Emperor Nero. Paul was beheaded. Now Paul was not one of the disciples. He was an apostle, which means an apostle is someone who has been called by Jesus. He was called, but separately. And a, a disciple is someone who is a follower of someone that looks to them as a teacher. Peter was crucified upside down in his request since he did not feel he was worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. So both these guys come to a bad end, don't they? Andrew. Andrew went to the Soviet Union. Christians there claim him as the first to bring the gospel to their land. He also preached in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and in Greece, where he is said to have been crucified. Peter and Paul have gone to Rome. Andrew has gone to the Soviet Union. I mean, this to us is like going to the far side of the moon. Okay. Give me my next uh, scripture, Connie. John 11. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sakes I'm glad I wasn't there, for now you will really believe. Come, let's go see him. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too and die with Jesus. Wow, that's a follower, isn't it? But then again, in the next scripture, John 20, here we go. One of the twelve disciples, Thomas, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we've seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail, hand, nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound in his side. Eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. What a turnaround. So Thomas, what happened to him? He was probably most active in the area east of Syria. Tradition has him preaching as far east as India where the ancient Marthoma Christians revere him as their founder. He went to India. They claim that he died there when pierced through with the spears of four soldiers. Philip. Philip possibly had a powerful ministry in Carthage in North Africa and then in Asia Minor where he converted the wife 
of a Roman proconsul. In retaliation, the proconsul had Philip arrested and cruelly put to death. Matthew, the tax collector and writer of a gospel, ministered in Persia and Ethiopia. Some of the oldest reports says he was not martyred, while others say he was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. Bartholomew had widespread missionary travels attributed to him by tradition to India with Thomas, back to Armenia, and also to Ethiopia and South, Southern Arabia. There are various accounts of how he met his death as a martyr for the gospel. I'm going to read something that I did not give this scripture to Connie. But this is about... Um, Here. James and John, who were brothers. And apparently their mother kind of followed along wherever they went. At least she was there on some occasions. And this is what she said about her boys. This is in Matthew 20, verse 20. Then the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus with her sons. These two boys are with her. They're grown-up boys. They're not children. She knelt respectfully to ask a favor. What is your request, he said. He asked, rather. She replied, in your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. But Jesus answered by saying to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from a bitter cup? of suffering I'm about to drink. And she wasn't asked, he wasn't asking the mother. He was asking those two boys. So what did they say? Oh, yes, we're able. Are you sure? Jesus told him, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup, but I have no right to say who will sit on my right or my left. My father has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. So these guys are good with uh, their mother coming up and asking for a special place for them. They believe that Jesus is going to have a kingdom. And they want to have a special place. Yeah, sure. And then it goes on to say, and I did not read this, but it says the other ten disciples were angry. <laughs> well, I mean, after all, this, these two guys got their mother speaking for them. They didn't have to say a word. So James is reckoned to have ministered in Syria. The Jewish historian Josephus reported he was stoned and then clubbed to death. Simon the Zealot. So the story goes, he ministered in Persia and was killed after refusing to sacrifice to the sun god. Matthias was the apostle chosen to replace Judas. Tradition sends him to Syria with Andrew and to death by burning. So all these guys had a terrible outcome, didn't they? Here they're kind of wishy-washy. They're not sure who Jesus is. They hear him sometimes. They're, yeah, we believe who you are. And then when he's crucified, they're nowhere to be found. John was the only one that's known to have been at Jesus' crucifixion. He was there with Mary. And Jesus, from the cross, tells John, accept her as your mother and tells Mary he is going to be your son. So John is given the responsibility of caring for Mary. Now is that a big deal? 
It's said that Mary was one of the one of the most important leaders in the church in Jerusalem. We we sometimes overlook, you know, we, we read scripture and we believe it and all this kind of thing. How do we know the account of Jesus' virgin birth? How do we know about the, the angels and everything that happened? Who was there? Who was there? Mary was there. So is it critical for Mary to not be persecuted, killed? You know, she's the, she's the mother of this criminal who's just been crucified. She's got to have her say. And the scriptures literally say when these events, events happen that Mary kept quiet. She held those things into her heart. But it was important for her to reveal these things at some time in the future. Now John has been given the responsibility for her. Okay. John's got to care for her. So what happens to John? John is the only disciple generally thought to have died a natural death from old age. He was the leader of the church in the Ephesus area and is said to have taken care of Mary, the mother of Jesus, in his home. An early Latin tradition has him escaping unhurt after being cast into boiling oil at Rome. So his purpose wasn't finished. So all of this is to say that something happened. You can say what you want to about the frailties and about the weaknesses of these men and you think how in the world could our Lord have chosen them as disciples? Now, Lee Strobel in his book investigates many things. And I won't talk about them. I don't remember all of them. I wouldn't, so I wouldn't be able to talk about them all. But um, there are people who've written critiques of his book, and they find fault with many of the things that he says. But there is one thing absolutely that they cannot find fault with, and that is the fact that these men who were frail, who were weak, who needed a leader, who needed Jesus with them, something happened to change them completely from, wow, okay, from their weakness, from their inabilities, to make them willing to go to the far ends of the world. And this is no easy thing. If for a traveler in that time, you would have to go find a ship going in the general direction of where you needed to go, find a camel caravan going and uh, put your trust in the hands of other people. You'd have to have enough money and means to travel or just go uh, believing that God is going to supply your needs. And that's, that's what Paul did. Wherever he went, he just relied on the people there to take care of him. But these guys went from doubting, not knowing, um, unsure what to do after Jesus was crucified, to being willing to go and give their lives, go to wherever, wherever I need to go, wherever the Lord will send me. Let the Holy Spirit direct me, send me. I'll go. It doesn't matter. If I die, I die. I mean, that's exactly what happened. And, I, and no one can come up with a valid argument as to why these men would do that unless it was absolutely certain that they saw the risen Jesus. They saw, they saw him prove who he was. They had conversations with him. 
And he said, go ye into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And it wasn't, it wasn't just like I said it just then. Oh, that's a nice sounding thing. Oh, that's important. We need to do that. Oh, that's, that's a good thing. Yeah. No, they took it literally. They left their families. They left their means of livelihood. I mean, fishermen to go to the deserts, through the deserts, to go to these places, not knowing anybody, not knowing the language even. And there is there's such an astounding amount of evidence that they literally did that. There, there is nothing equivalent to it in this world. Now, there are people, there are followers of Islam, there are followers of Buddhism. There are a few people here and there that, that would dedicate their lives to doing that kind of thing. But for every one of Jesus' disciples being willing to do that, without exception, Jesus, uh, Judas of course, committed suicide. But even Matthias, who came afterwards, he was willing to do it. So how can we have any doubt? This, this is a subject that I've, I've, I've never heard anybody preach about. Perhaps they have. I've just not personally heard about it. Um, if, you, if you have the opportunity to get that book and read it, it's called The Case for Christ. And it's written by a man who is just, just trying to inquire, inquire without any bias. Whether he was not a Christian, so he was not biased toward looking for results based on what he already believed. He was just trying to examine things. All right. Well, let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to, to talk about the faithfulness of the disciples how they were changed by you, our Lord. <clears throat> I just pray that all of us would be changed, Lord. I pray that all of us would have an experience in our lives that would change us to be a, a devout follower. If we're not now, I pray that we would search Scripture. I pray that we'd, we would be assured by what Scripture tells us about who you were, who you are, and who you will be. I just thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that... Um, you are with us every step of the way. Even when we think that we are weak, we think we're not able, that you will sustain us. You will give us what we need. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.